According to the media, the use of novel psychoactive substances, sometimes incorrectly known as legal highs, is on the increase. However, there's limited information available to health professionals on what these are and how they work. Two articles in the BMJ this week aim to update clinicians on what they need to know about these substances. I'm joined in the studio by two of the authors, David Wood, a consultant physician and toxicologist at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, and Derek Tracy, a consultant psychiatrist at Oxley's NHS Trust, to tell us more about what they've written. We're also joined by Kate Adlington, one of our clinical editors who's also a core psychiatric trainee. Derek, maybe you can start by explaining what, what is meant by the term legal high, which people might have heard of in the media. I suppose the first thing to say is they're not legal. Well, they might be highs. So they, what's happened in recent years has been this, an explosion in new compounds that people are taking. And there was a situation where a new compound be synthesised, be a modified version of the existing drug, like, say, ecstasy, and that was legal and would be prescribed later on by the, by the government. A new compound be synthesised after that. So what we've had in recent years has been a huge growth. There are over 500 compounds that are now being monitored. The best estimates are over 120, 15 were synthesised. And people use the catch-all term legal highs for them. So as you said, new or novel psychoactive substances is a better term. It's probably not as catchy, so it's not used by as many people. The other issue with the term legal high is, for me, the problem as well as it being technically inaccurate, it inferred a safety. There was almost a diet coke element to it. I could take an established drug or I could take a legal high. And there's somewhat of a danger with the term, particularly potentially for children, that it would seem safer. Mm. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? Absolutely not. I, I think saying legal high or even saying NPS in a way is not particularly informative. It's like saying someone takes drugs. Mm. It depends which compound. There's variation between them and there's variation between how people tolerate these substances. David, in your role, you say you see people who are seeing, you know, taking drugs in the acute setting. Compared to traditional recreational drugs, what sort of proportions are you seeing in terms of your workload? So often when people come into the emergency department and say they've taken a recreational drug or a new drug, they don't necessarily know exactly what they've purchased from a dealer or off the internet or in the old days from a high street head shop. They've bought a pill or a powder. It may have some description that goes with it. So they don't actually know exactly what they've taken. So when we try and look at how big the problem is, it's quite difficult to understand. We know from some data from a project that I co-run through Guy's and St Thomas's called the Euroden Plus Project or the European Drug Emergencies Network plus project where we collect data from a number of emergency departments across Europe that when we look at all presentations related to recreational drugs or new drugs actually new drugs are the minority of presentations compared to classical drugs um, or prescription over-the-counter medications so less than 10% relate to a new psychoactive substance but there are probably a number where we don't actually know they've taken the new drug because they say they've taken a powder or a pill or they've taken cocaine, which actually doesn't contain the thing they think it should do. It's always hard to get good data on what's quasi-legal or illegal activity. And it's something people, for lots of good reasons, may not want to tell professionals about. There's a bit of a clinical illusory effect. We see what we see. So we see when there are problems and people come into us. NPS, in, in the same way with established recreational drugs, I think the profile varies. So different specialties may see these in different ways. I think there's going to be a difference between the type of people or problems that may come into me in mental health, the type of people who may go into accident and emergency, and the difficulties that might be seen in primary care. 
when you're looking at the people who don't present to either psychiatrists or to GPs or uh, emergency department or other healthcare professionals, when you look at the general wider population, you look at surveys, we have some data from the Crime Survey England and Wales, which obviously is an established long-running survey looking about um, classical recreational drugs and they add in some of the newer drugs as well to that. There are a number of subpopulation surveys, so things like the Global Drug Survey and some work that we do going out into nightclubs and asking people about the use of drugs. And actually overall, if you look at all of those, actually the use of these the newer drugs is much lo- is lower than the, some of the classical drugs that have been out there for a longer period of time. And Kate? You were about to say yeah, something. I was just going to say, kind of practically, from perspective, you're seeing someone who's come into any or acutely having taken something, and, and not. How do you go about kind of trying to find out what it is they've taken? Do you, you know, there, is there some way you can look on the internet? Will you maybe even ask them to show you the package, and can you get some sort of clue from that what it might be, or? You know, is it even useful to take the sample? Do you ever take the sample and send it off to someone, I suppose, like yourself, a clinical toxicologist? So I think in the UK, when it comes to the emergency department presentations, we don't routinely screen people who come in with drug toxicity because we obviously need to treat people more urgently and we can get the results back for that. And for some of the newer drugs, we can wait days or weeks to get a full comprehensive screen back. I think in terms of information available to clinicians at the front door when someone comes in unwell, obviously there's the National Poisons Information Service, their telephone support line and tox base, which can obviously provide some information around the drug and the potential harms associated with it. But from an actual clinical point of view, when you're treating a patient, it doesn't always matter what they say they've taken because they may not know exactly what they've taken and what the packet says may not be actually what's within the packet. So actually the treating clinician should look at the patient and look at what type of problems they've got. And actually, although these are new drugs, they've treated a lot of patients with classical drugs who have exactly the same type of symptoms when they come in and the treatment is very similar to what they would do in those situations. That's probably a good time for us to talk about the classification, which you sort of raise very nicely in the clinical update. Um, I know that you said there are hundreds of these substances, but they all behave in slightly similar ways. And there's some element of sort of pattern recognition or or ability to categorise them into what you might know about sort of traditional highs and Derek, do you want to talk a bit about that? It can feel a bit overwhelming. So lots of people will be aware that there are hundreds of these drugs. And what spurs me a bit in teaching is saying to people, you probably already know quite a bit about drug classifications with existing drugs. And we can slot most NPS into these. And one of the things we want to get across in the paper is we can categorise the NPS into these. They're going to differ. So if we think of things like stimulants and existing drugs from ecstasy to cocaine to amphetamines there's a range of effects and it's the same with the NPS variants and people will vary too but nevertheless we can think conceptually in terms of big groups so if new drugs as they will be will be synthesized next year and the year after they will fit into these categories I think it's important to say the categories aren't as well defined as we'd like there's some overlap between them there is variation but I think it's a good starting way to look at the at the drugs when we were trying to actually put the papers together, actually, even within ourselves, we debated about how many categories there should be in terms of how you classify the drugs. And for different people working in different areas of medicine or nursing or elsewhere, actually, within your own environment, you may think of the drug classification slightly differently. Mm-hmm. So from an acute front door perspective, we probably would normally look at, say, three categories. But from a psychiatry or from a primary care perspective, you're, it might be maybe more broader, it may be more categories. So we tried to come down 
with what we thought was a sensible way of looking at it across a number of different fields because it varies from department to department. Yeah. If we think about the classification that you've come up with, accepting that there is overlap and that it's you know not perfect in every situation, which from your perspectives do you tend to see more of? You mentioned you probably see three categories presenting in the acute setting. What, what are they and how do you see them present? So I suppose from an acute front door perspective, we see uh, the three categories would be the stimulants, the depressants and the hallucinogenics. Mm-hmm. And I guess people would be able to think about classical drugs that fit into those. So for example, we talk about stimulants, you could think about things like drugs like cocaine or MDMA or amphetamines. And when people take drugs such as methadone, which is a stimulant, they'll come in with very similar problems. So they'll come in with agitation, anxiety, they may have had a seizure, they may have tachycardia or fast heart rate, hypertension or high blood pressure or high temperature. So those are kind of features you'd see. Or they are new new drugs that cause depressants. So things, classical drugs would be heroin or opioids or GHB. Some of the newer drugs would be some of the newer opioids out there. So they come in drowsy and associated with that, they may have poor, poor respiratory effort and associated problems. And then the hallucinogenic drugs cause people to hallucinate. So classical drugs would be things like LSD or ketamine. The newer drugs, methoxetamine, cause very similar pictures. But I guess with some of the newer drugs, one of the things we see is whereas before things were more categorised, some of the newer drugs have stimulant features as well. So, for example, methoxetamine is a, is very similar to ketamine, but it has much more stimulant effects than you'd expect for ketamine. So there's a little bit of an overlap, mm. but I guess those are the three broad categories we'd see. It's Sorry. quite interesting because in, in mental health, it's quite a different picture. And for us, the big concern are the cannabinoids. And they're sometimes known as SCRAS, which is synthetic uh, cannabis receptor agonists. In mental health, cannabis has always been a problematic drug for us. It's linked, it's causally associated with psychosis. And the same with the SCRAS or the cannabinoids. The anxiety for us with that class of drug is, unlike cannabis, which is THC is the active ingredient, it's a partial agonist, with the NPS variants, they're full agonists, so they seem more potent. The other interesting thing is that cannabis has lots of different compounds in it. One of them, cannabidiol, is an antipsychotic, and the NPS variants don't have that. So they seem more potent, at least some of them. There are anecdotal reports coming through, but they are just case reports and series at the moment of people being somewhat refractory to treatment. So we're seeing stories in prisons and forensic units and psychiatric intensive care units of people coming in very agitated and psychotic on the SCRAS and some of them being somewhat refractory to intervention. As David said, I think our protocols are as they were. So there is an evidence base for giving antipsychotics when we see them or for giving benzodiazepines where people are quite agitated, but some people don't seem to be responding as quickly. And one of the big concerns in mental health, a speculative but unanswered question is, will these compounds have neurodevelopmental, will they cause neurodevelopmental problems for younger people who are taking them? And we don't know. So we know that if you smoke cannabis, you increase your likelihood of developing psychotic illnesses. It seems reasonable to presume that'll be the case with the SCRAS. The anxiety is that it may produce a slightly different picture. So we think of psychoses as spectrum disorders, and it might shift the curve somewhat and produce more fractury illness. The SCRAS is a very interesting group of drugs. I mean, people call them by a different name. People might call them SCRAS or synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonist. Or, um, or, and there are a number of different compounds within that. 
And I guess previously we didn't see a lot of cannabis presenting to the emergency departments. And actually with the first generation or the first sort of scrolls that came onto the recreational drug scene, um, a lot of the reports were of similar features to cannabis and so more around the psychiatric type problems. But as they've evolved over time, um, we've getting more and more, co- we're getting increasing compounds which are associated with more significant toxicity. So we had some compounds which are associated with more stimulant type features. And more recently, we've actually seen an increasing number of people People coming in who've had um, sort of convulsions and also neurological depression. So what you normally see with opioids and things like that, so coming in very, very drowsy and associated with respiratory depression. So these drugs can evolve even within the own class over time. And I think Scrars is one which initially was not a big problem, but actually over the last six, 12 months, probably in the UK has become much more of a problem. Mm. Can I just ask, is that does that category is that what spice no that's yes. that, that spice is spice is, as well so isn't it so spice is the name that people started to use so as you when they first came on the recreational drug scene spice was what they called it in people used to call it in the uk so it was spice spice gold a number of other spice mm-hmm. products in the us they used to be called k2 at the same time and then there were a number of other products which train names that people may hear patients talking about things like black mamba mm-hmm. clockwork orange pandora's box um, but there's a range of different yeah. products and probably that's the biggest actual category that's increasing so there's at least 150 to 200 different synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists and when people buy a product it usually has a combination of them mm-hmm. so they may have a completely different combination each time they buy it and it's not clear why the combination is there whether that's to give the desired effect by having that combination or whether because the concentration of each one is low enough that it makes detection more difficult mm. um, but it does lead to variability in products over time okay Let's get it. okay in terms of the the categories of substances are there any that you feel are particularly harmful or that you've seen the most harm from in your in your clinical fields well, for me, it's going back to the earlier points. On mental health, the biggest anxiety at the moment is with the cannabinoids. I, I think benzodiazepines, we, we haven't seen benzodiazepines in mental health can be problematic for lots of people. Mm-hmm. There are fewer data on NPS variants. There, there's information out there, but the, it's not as big a problem as yet. It's, it's not clear if there's, it's going to be a bigger problem in the future. Mm-hmm. I think from an acute point of view, it depends upon the setting you're looking at. So I guess the stimulant, rec- the stimulant new drugs obviously can cause quite patients to become very unwell and need a lot of medical and nursing intervention and a lot of treatment um, when they present. Obviously, they're very severely agitated or they've got cardiovascular problems or they've got hypothermia, which may need um, quite aggressive treatment. The other big area where, from an acute point of view, there's been a problem recently has been around the use of scrars within prisons. Um, these are drugs which are used at very, very low concentrations, and it's very easy to get them into prison compared to other um, products. They can be sprayed onto um, paper, and then the paper then um, ingested, and then you get the, the effects from that point of view. So I guess that those have caused a lot of problems in prison with lots of inmates becoming unwell because obviously it's much more difficult to prevent their, their influx into prison compared to some of the other uh, recreational drugs and new drugs. You, you did mention before about sort of the fact that doctors are not confident about this and and trying to you know encourage people to model it in a similar to way, way to how you'd normally ask about sort of um, standard drugs, non NPS drugs. And I suppose what are the important questions to ask? Should you still be asking those questions about you know route of administration, how they take it? Kind of what 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 kind of framework can you use when asking about NPS? 
from mm. a, a treating a patient who comes in unwell mm. um, acutely, um, it probably doesn't matter about the ray they've taken mm. it. There may be some additional risks and risk assessment you might do if obviously if they've been injecting drugs because obviously they may be at greater risk of bacterial infection because of injecting bloodborne virus transmission um, and obviously those types of risks which may need to be considered in addition to the acute effects from the drugs they've taken. But I guess patients and well patients and people because actually most people who take drugs don't all present to the emergency department take them by a, variety, by a variety of different routes and we're used to the fact that most people when they talk about cocaine will assume that pe- most people will snort cocaine when they go out um, and with a lot of the newer stimulants people did used to snort the new drugs as well one of the effects that cocaine has is it's a local anesthetic so um, with the newer drugs they're not local anesthetic so a lot of people were actually reporting they were getting a lot of nasal irritation and stuff so they look at alternative ways to take it to try and get rid of some of the minor effects they're not going to present to hospital with an irritated nose but there's a lot more swallowing of these drugs they wrap them in cigarette papers and other uh, things uh, which are water soluble so and then they swallow them that's a process known by known as bombing um, you can obviously mix them into drinks and swallow them. Um, some of them people do inject. So we know that mephedrine, which is a drug which most people have heard of, meow meow, MCAT were the names when it came to the media. Most of that was previously taken by either nasal insufflation or snorting or swallowing it if you've got a lot of pain. But we do know there are certain groups of people who have now moved that across and actually injecting it as they would do with that, some of the other sort of uh, classical recreational drugs. I think, too, in a non-acute setting, I think it is an important question. I think it's important for people to realise, like David said, that there's much more variability in the mechanisms, the ways people can take it. I think it is important. So, again, if, we, if most clinicians will have an established model about thinking, well, if someone injects a drug, that carries other types of risks with it, too. And I, I think, too, people need to think about longer-term vulnerabilities. So if people are using drugs, if they're safeguarding issues, that may be important. If they're vulnerable... Uh, people around children and families and so forth social service need to be involved so I think it does add to complexity in non-acute settings I think it'd be good just to talk a little bit about assessment if you if you know if you meet somebody who you think might be you know taking these substances or someone trying to tell you about substances they've taken what it's important as a non-specialist to ask about I mean you've covered some of those things you've just talked about safeguarding issues and obviously there are questions around that But I wonder just in terms of the history that you want, if you want to try and offer help or support to someone who's taking novel psychoactive substances. I think in in non-acute settings, more more than the particular information you need to get, I think what's important is the manner in which we deal with our patients. And there's something about being empathic and sensitive and understanding. And coming across as non-judgmental, people can be scared. They can be worried about disclosing this information and what it might mean. They may be worried what you'll do with that information or how you'll think about them. So I think it's important and to maybe take that on and address it and say that at the start, that I recognise it might be difficult to talk about it, but it's helpful if you tell me how it impacts you and how we can help. So for psychiatrists and psychologists, we use a thing called motivational interviewing, which is just really straightforward technique about not trying to directly challenge or be perceived to be criticizing people. For me, I'd want to try classify the type of compounds. We've talked earlier on about the major groupings to get a sense maybe of the frequency that's uh, and quantity that's consumed, how it's used, is it intravenous, is it swallowed? For, for me, in mental health, a useful uh, guide is how much people are spending on compounds, give you a sense of how it might impact their life. And then to ask, to ask the person, do you think it's a problem? 
does it impact on your mental health, on your physical health? And mental health and substance misuse can go hand in glove. It's a bit of chicken and egg for some people about which started it. But to, to rather than confront drug use, to say, well, how can we help? What would you like us to do with your life? And to think more broadly that people can have impulsive acts on drugs are there issues around their sexual health again do social services need to be involved but i think tonality and how we speak to people is really important um, you mentioned about sexual health there there are some sexual health work uh, clinics now which obviously recognize that use of recreational drugs new psychiatric substances and alcohol obviously increases sexual risk and they do have uh, drug and alcohol treatment workers who or members of staff who are trained up to do some of that brief intervention around drug use so that may be another point of access particularly for some people who may not Younger people using drugs may not access healthcare facilities that often because they don't have a lot of medical problems. But a lot of people are having sex and they will be accessing sexual health clinics either just for screening or for STIs to have treatment. And then there may be facilities there if they feel they've got problems with drugs that it comes up in conversation, they may be able to help from that point of view as well. What sort of advice do you give people if you find out from the history that they're taking a substance they're quite happy with the level that they're taking they don't want to change what what sort of support can you give them or information can you offer them to try and minimize the harm i think it probably depends on on what the harms are so mm-hmm. i think it's quite a wide range as we've mentioned at different points it can go from sexual health to putting oneself in vulnerable situations to direct harms on physical health and mental health. So I think it probably depends on the person and what the risk profile is perceived to be. I I think, like David said, if someone isn't ready or willing to tackle drug use, we can't make them and we can only advise on it. If someone is interested in harm reduction, then to me, in general, there would be a principle of trying to reduce quantity and frequency. The drugs we're always concerned about with that are opioids and benzodiazepines where there can be withdrawal, physical withdrawal symptoms from it. And you have to be careful. We can't tell people to just stop taking them. But I think reduction in frequency and quantity. In substance misuse more generally, I think people find it difficult to do less. I think as people, we're not good at that. If people think about alcohol, if you tell someone to drink a bit less, sometimes what works for some people is putting in objective markers. For example, saying, well, I won't take any on Monday and Wednesday. That's a classic strategy in alcohol, where people tend to find that easier than having a bit less out of a bottle of wine. It's harder to do that. So I guess alongside the, the opioids and benzodiazepines, the other group of drugs that some people may talk about are GHB and related drugs, GBL, which also associated with physical dependency. And I guess those are also another group of drugs where if someone talks about those and they're using them regularly, they shouldn't be told to stop them suddenly because they can become very unwell when they go into withdrawal. I think in terms of harm minimisation, it's not just about thinking about the drugs themselves, but also about thinking about other things. So talking to people about sexual risk, which was mentioned already, but also if people are injecting drugs, talk to them about where are they getting their needles from? You know, what sources can they get needles and syringes from? Do they know that it's everything they're using should be um, their own, not just a needle and syringe to stop bloodborne virus transmission? And if they're using a drug, what's the setting? Do they know who they're with? Do they know is someone not using a drug, which is ideal? Although we know that when people go to a party, there's unlikely to be one person who isn't. But then there's someone around who can call an ambulance if someone becomes unwell. And you know, start low. Don't go for your 
don't go for a big dose because if it's something new or you get something unusual when you buy something, if you've taken a small amount, you're not likely to become as unwell as if you take a lot of it. So there are things that we talk to some patients about if they know they're going to continue using about how they reduce some of the risks, not just of the drugs, but the wider problems you can get when you're using drugs and alcohol. And I think finally, probably, it would be nice for us to talk a bit about if somebody is keen on reducing or stopping use and they've had a discussion and you feel as a non-specialist you've reached your limits of expertise, where do you refer and what sort of services are what are likely to be on offer uh, in order to help them achieve their goals? There are sub- substance misuse services throughout the country and one positive shift from me in the last few years is that Whilst it can vary from area to area, I have found services are becoming much more receptive to seeing people with NPS use. My personal experience a few years ago was that some services were less, felt less geared up to it. We would call them up and they would say, oh, well, we don't do that. We do traditional drugs A, B, C and D. And I think there's more of an acceptance recently that, well... If there are substances that are harming people or that people want to change, they will deal with it. So it does vary, but I think most substance misuse services are now quite good at seeing people who use NPS. What varies widely, first of all, is the type of intervention that's given. So we use replacement and detoxification for opioids and benzodiazepines, and it tends to be much more of a psychosocial approach with other classes of drugs such as stimulants. But there are lots of approaches that can be used by substance misuse services, from psychological approaches to trying to improve people's social environment and so forth and rehabilitation. There, there are services out there for people. I think that's important that not everyone probably knows that. David, Derek and Kate, thank you for joining me for a really interesting discussion today. And you can read the full clinical update and practice pointer on the bmj.com now.